0: This is the Weekly Bull and Bear by WealthFest, a podcast for financial professionals. Each week, Drew Dockin and Grant Collins will have an in-depth conversation on what's happening in the markets.
1: Good afternoon, everybody. We got Tim and Grant, myself, back on. It is June 7th. Right now, the markets are up slightly. Dow's up a little over 100 we see the 10-year Treasuries drop slightly, uh, you know, at the end of the business day yesterday was about 304. Now it's hovering around the high 2.9s. Um, yields are really following as the market awaits, you know, more inflation indicators. Uh, with that, you know, I'll open it up and see what see yeah. what else everyone else is thinking.
2: Hi, right, Drew. Yeah, we're kind of chopping around. We get uh, basically the two events for this week is the ecb on thursday where they're not going to do anything but signal their hawkishness the uh the kind of terminal rate looking out in europe is all the way out to about 150 bips uh they've obviously got the issue of trying to figure out how to tighten rates but at the same time italy is already becoming a basket case just with the discussion of it and you see the long end really start to fall apart in italy but you also see booms really start to move. So, you know, I think that over the next few weeks, you're going to hear a lot more about how is Lagarde going to manage this? Is Europe already in a recession? You'll hear more and more about, you know, the issues of does peripheral Europe belong with Germany. So not to get too far down the road on that. And then obviously we get CPI on Friday. Who knows? It'll probably come down a little bit. And the Fed overall is getting what they want. You know, you are have it. You have oil. Uh, I'm sorry. You have housing coming off the boil just a little bit. You know, you have new inventory starting to build up. You have Michigan intentions rolling over. So the forward-looking indicators on housing are starting to weaken. I mean, that's just inevitable when you have the move that we've had uh, in the long end of the curve. Uh, employment rate of change is slowing. You had a good non-farm payroll number on friday but overall adp is a little bit weaker uh the jolts numbers are kind of topping out a little bit so again the fed is going to get what they want it'll be slow and i think that the bigger concern for markets near term is if they're not getting what they want is if you do get uh really strong employment readings still and you get stronger than expected housing readings i don't think that's going to happen but that would be sort of a disaster here for this market so you're really hoping or a controlled slowdown where housing comes off the boil but doesn't collapse, and the same thing on the um, on the employment side. Where I'm getting more nervous though is on the energy side, and I, I feel like I'm getting more nervous just because I, I I've talked to a couple of energy analysts this week. who just I mean, look, there is no if, if you talk to ten energy analysts this week, ten of them would say that we are screwed on the capacity side in terms of refining capacity. You know, there was the oil uh, there was the Saudi oil energy minister who made the comment a few weeks ago like we could pump more oil. Uh it's not going to do anything for gasoline prices in the United States. I mean, you look at it, we have less capacity than we did 10 years ago. Uh and we have almost 10% less capacity in refining product than we did just three years ago. And CapEx in the refining sector in the United States is down 50% in three years. Again, US 10 energy analysts, are we gonna have more or the same or less refining capacity next year? 10 out of 10 would say the same or less. We are not, and, and again, it is the unintended consequence of doing the right thing, climate change is a disaster, but you now have an industry that is being run for cash. Uh, So I don't know if you guys have thoughts on that front.
3: Yeah. The short-term pain is it's at the pump already. I I saw someone from California show a picture of gas at $7 and 25 cents and my stomach turned over a little bit. We did see oil futures hover around $120 per barrel today and because of that, we saw energy be one of the top performing sectors. So we saw Exxon Mobil jump 3%. We saw Chevron jump 1.6%. So might be a good time to be looking at those energy (laughs) energy sector stocks because oil is going to continue to rise the capacity. We have tankers sitting on shorelines because they can't dump loads into refineries and and it's going to be, um, it's going to be here to stay. I mean, also if you look at airline, prices a big driver of those is the fuel of jet fuel right so sure. jet fuel prices are are skyrocketing as well so we're, we're seeing that also also jump up
2: you know yeah the, the thing, i'm sorry go ahead drew
1: oh yeah I, I guess just more to that point you know we're talking about this run uh you know there's an analyst out of evercore isi said that you know exxon is cheap even after it's surged more than 61 percent this year and that has to do with you know a year ago you had oil at ten dollars a barrel or whatever right now um they still got some ground to make up despite what's happened recently
2: yeah i mean exxon is not expensive on a p ratio and you listen to paul sankey uh who had a comment i think it was on cnbc yesterday that he thinks he's probably got 40 he's probably thinks that at least if Spot stays where it is if we if we continue at this kind of hundred and twenty dollar oil and these kind of refining margins and uh, and petroleum product and you know polyethylene type margins, you would be 40% upside on Exxon. So and you know, you look at S P earnings, S P earnings, the the NTM, the next 12 months hasn't really come down that much. But discretionaries come down like 15 or 20% in energy estimate earnings, which were, you know, a de minimis part of the S&P a couple of years ago, but now up to like 10%, they're up over 25%. So, you know, while the S&P earnings estimates have gone down, it looks a hell of a lot different than it did a year ago.
3: And I think you're absolutely right when we think about the biggest thing that is on the agenda for this week, really looking at May's consumer price index due on Friday. Really the big indicator there to see if inflation may have peaked and that we're starting to come down a little bit. But one of the big things that we saw last week was the May non-farm payrolls. Uh, Looks like leisure and hospitality still remains 1.3 million jobs below its pre-pandemic. But overall, it it was a good sign with um, a little under uh, 390,000 jobs unemployment creeping down to the 3.5, 3.6%. Drew, what do we think about these numbers as they came out?
1: Uh, well, Tim's historically not been a, a big fan of non-farm payrolls.
3: That's why I passed uh, it to you yeah. before. <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> uh, you look, it looks like a good growth in leisure and hospitality, pretty great in government services, um, also great across the public sector board, a lot of new government jobs. Uh, You know, not a I don't like gangbuster number, but slightly better than than expected. Um, And, you know, still still shows a a pretty tight labor market. So, you know, I mean, you get the number of once you're below four percent unemployment, once you're above five, four percent inflation. That's one of the many recessionary indicators. Right. We'll, We'll get into a minute on what Elon musk got a super bad feeling, uh, his words, not mine, um, but, you know, as of now, as of these numbers, as of everything else, uh, job market seems like it remains pretty tight.
2: Yeah, no doubt. And too tight, right? The Fed needs to see those numbers come down. And I would argue that the worst case scenario uh, for equity markets in the near term is if you keep getting 400 type non-farm payrolls and you keep seeing three, six type uh, Unemployment numbers, you really need to see, as I said, the rate of change is slowing, but you really need to start to see them weaken or or the fear is that the Fed is going to be have to be that much more aggressive. The labor component here of inflation is a problem uh, and fed has got a ton of work to do.
3: Another big piece is I always look at the labor force participation rate edged a little bit higher, rising to 6.23 percent, though it's still 1.1 percent lower than February 2020, right before the pandemic. And the labor force is also smaller by about 200,000 jobs. So that that is a number to think about. And that may be another reason why we have such a tight tight, tight market is the labor force is still down when we compare that to say the 1980s and where people are trying to make similarities on the run of inflation, the, the labor market participation was significantly higher than the than, than we have now.
2: Yeah, we haven't gained the participation rate of before the pandemic. We're a long ways away. We're at 623. I think before the pandemic we were at 634. Uh and look, you don't we do not have a growing labor force. GDP is labor force growth, workforce growth, and productivity. We don't have either. Uh, and you know, you, you have this minimal improvement and, and labor force participation, but it's still really, really weak. And that isn't gonna change.
1: Yeah, I mean, in the absence of people needing to come out of retirement or obviously opening up the border to broader immigration, these yeah. kind of long-term demographic trends,
3: and speaking of tight labor force you, you hinted to it drew but elon musk coming out with his super bad feeling about the economy and now needs to cut 10% of of his staff at electrical car at his tesla car maker uh, one way of of telling people that they're going to get laid off a little public for, <laughs> for for my liking but all in all what what do we think about his comments we saw the CEO, Jamie Dimon, also have he's talking about a hurricane that we're, we have coming for us. We saw Goldman Sachs as president hinting at a recession. You know, h- how much should we look into these comments? Because Elon Musk has historically known to fire off a tweet that he maybe wish he put a little more thought into. Or he's really calculating this as a way for people to resign at, at specific times when we when we could see a, a hiring freeze. Drew, are you taking that?
1: Yeah, sure. Um, well, I mean, when you look at, it's not, I guess, necessarily unique to Tesla right now. Nvidia is talking about hiring freezes. Uh, Netflix, Coinbase, for for obvious reasons. Um, you know, we saw Bitcoin drop fifty percent, and they were supposed to be an inflation hedge. Uh, but you know, you have a variety of tech sectors across the board, in particular, who are talking about slowing things down um, a little bit, and and. Uh, Elon's not unique in that, um, I mean, I guess, obviously, you know, the, the laying off staff of 10% is is totally unique. When we look at other auto, automobile companies, uh, it seems like there's been a lot more union pressures, right? I mean, like the Toyotas and and kind of the mainstream run-of-the-line unions, they've, they've increased wages and benefits and everything else um, over the last couple of years, and they haven't necessarily come out on Twitter and said they're looking at actually 10% as it stands. But yeah, I mean, a lot to make of it. He is, as you said, a chronic tweeter, I mean, whether it's Game Stonk or Dogecoin, or, um, you know, whether he wants to get involved in uh, the, the crisis in Thailand, when little kids were trapped in a cave, uh, <laughs> he's in all of it, right? So um, that's just part of his personality.
2: Yeah. And, you know, you're still looking at Twitter at a 700 billion dollar valuation. I mean, you have to think that before is all is before all is said and done, um, there's a valuation problem there. And part of the problem is that, you know, not that the growth rate of the company isn't phenomenal, not that the gross margins uh, aren't impressive and so forth. But you have a leader who is truly a lunatic. And the guy is reckless. And I think that it has been a major regulatory failure uh, that he hasn't actually been reined in far more than he has been. And clearly he hasn't learned his lesson. All the nonsense that he's doing with Twitter. I mean, he has no intention of buying Twitter. Uh, And now he's got this lunatic attorney general in Texas actually coming to his defense, looking criminally at Twitter for, you know, Overinflating their MDAUs when they have explicitly talked at length in their public filings about how they look at MDAUs. So, the whole thing uh, to me is it just to me, it, it's an example of a failure of uh, regulation. It is another sign that our governance is weakening, uh, and it's a sign that we are still there are still bubbles in these equity markets. As evidenced by a $700 billion valuation for a car maker, there are reasons why GM and Ford have always traded at three and four times EBITDA, and I can tell you, intercombustion engine cars are still far, far, far more profitable to build uh, than electric cars. Uh, so I just, you know, and 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 you have a guy who is selling a consumer product where he has, you know. Ensured that a high percentage of the population, at least in the United States, is never going to want to buy that consumer product because they don't want to be associated with his brand and his name. So it, it just it, it, it's so reckless to me uh, for a guy who's the CEO of a $700 billion market cap company.
3: Well, he he's good at one thing, and that's definitely a fishing expedition, because it seems like he's done this before when we talk about him telling everyone that he has the funding, to take Tesla private, the SEC slapped him on the wrist for that because it was not public information. And from Twitter's standpoint, considering that Elon Musk has previously mentioned that he would create his own version of Twitter, it seems like not the, the best idea for Twitter to then give him the keys to the car and come in and and, and start taking it for, for a test drive beforehand. It, it is interesting to see how that the one thing that elon musk may have done well is it looks like his move to texas was beneficial for him sure. and tesla yeah. overall um so it, it it is interesting to see i mean if we do just think about some of the tech stocks one that always pe- people talk about is peloton and their slowdown you know I, th- I think theirs is completely different than if we look at tesla and facebook concert and t- even twitter compared to their earnings because when we look at really Peloton's financials their revenue was down 23% last quarter and then also their net income was down uh they their net income was down $750 million so it's not like they're in a good spot we saw their CEO turnover announcements that their CFO had just turned over uh, but but overall if you think about the the hiring freezes uh, a big piece of that is because these companies have really ballooned and they're high, high profile tech companies. We've been in a bull market where people are looking for growth. These tech stocks have provided that. And now they've expanded to places where now, now they're looking at they have too much overhead. They have way too many employees. They're not lean. They're ballooned. And 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 now people are going to start to see cuts and they're, they're going to come fast as we're headed into a recession.
2: Yeah, I agree with all that.
1: World Bank kind of came out with some the numbers today. Uh, looking at, I mean, a, a downgrade in terms of global economic performance. A lot of that they're attributing to China's slowdown. Um, Xi Jinping is up for a third term. Uh, the Chinese Communist Party doesn't seem like it has any really good alternatives. But he's been around for a bit now. Um, it's, it's actually quite unusual in this day and age for for the communists to to give give them three terms, but it's most likely what's going to happen. Um, I just, I guess that moves to the point, like how, how do we think he's doing overall? I mean, obviously, when we're looking at China's zero COVID policy, that is really affected it uh, when you're looking at the lockdowns in Shanghai, but also they they've wasted precious time in terms of COVID. Um, they, they didn't want to get import Western mRNA uh, vaccines and the, the Pfizer's and the Moderna's and everything else. And now you have a huge segment of the older population that isn't vaccinated. So they might have to run their zero COVID policy into next year even.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I think China's issue was way beyond the zero COVID policy. I still think that the Evergrande's of China and they are all across China is is, is the sign that you are at the very end of a huge uh, development growth engine uh, that has finally seen the debt bubble pop. That, you know, you could continue, as, long as, you, as long as the momentum was there, as long as consumers could keep buying empty apartments uh, and keep financing empty apartments and selling them to the greater fool, the whole thing could perpetuate. The local governments could keep selling lands and, ra- and raising revenue it's over. It's over. And beyond that, they, not only do they have a debt issue, not only do they have a huge bad debt issue in the property market, but as you noted, Drew, they have a huge demographic issue. So look, this whole growth engine of the world, uh, it's over. It's done. And you know, so the World Bank takes global growth from 4.1% to 2.9%. They seem to suggest that it could be even worse than that. Malpass uh, was was on TV today talking about it. He's worried about a overall global stagflationary environment. And look, more and more people, whether it is the CBO that is estimating one and a half percent kind of growth out to 2004, 2005, 2006 in the United States. The world is now finally recognizing that we are going to have much slower growth, much higher inflation, more instability. And, and some, to some degree, when you see 23 countries uh, impose import bans on grains uh, since the outset of the war uh, in the Ukraine, some level of end to globalization. There is nothing transitory about these fixes or changes to supply chains. Uh, it is going to be inflationary, and it's going to be inflationary for a really, really long time.
3: And the most important point there, I think, is is really talking about the supply chain. So in my opinion, what is the biggest driver of inflation right now is we cut off the entire world economy, shut it off, and then we're trying to restart it. But then also a lot of companies are looking at their supply chains. They're rebalancing. Do I need to have 75, 80 percent, whatever it is from one location or should I diversify? And so now we're looking at Apple doing this in China. Apple is one of the biggest companies in China now they're looking at some of their different uh, supply chains and now as companies are going to be rethinking about supply chains that's going to have a direct impact on the Chinese GDP To go back to something that you just said tim is is also really i mean the property sector so that's a fifth of their gdp and they're having a funding crunch right now so that's why we saw housing sales fall by 47 percent in april compared to a year ago where everywhere else they haven't been able to bill labor prices have have surged so in in the united states for example we've seen our, our housing market boom over the over the last year um and then a big piece is their their tech industry which they claim is their is their biggest but we've seen fines come out new regulations the breakup of of different mergers and acquisitions in the country and their tech sector contributes 8% to their gdp so just taking their their restrictions on their tech sector as well as their property sector that's a big hit to their to their gdp overall
1: yeah and you've seen venture capital increasingly squeamish about going into china right um so now you have Xi's policy is there's not one major sector that's currently in a liberalization standpoint so everything's kind of gotten more regulatory uh from the standpoint of the ccp i mean one of the only ways you can really look at china potential way out is an infrastructure spend Uh, i i didn't really i mean you go to all the Kong's and shanghai's of the world and you know you're thinking this is kind of a a jet-set city right but in many ways, China is still a huge laggard when we're looking at motorways. They've got 120,000 motorways per million uh, kilometers of motorways per 1 million people. I mean, in the United States, that's 326,000. Uh, but then even in rail, I mean, they're they're well behind. You know, they've got 106,000 uh, kilometers of railways per 1 million people. Well, in Germany, it's over 400 uh, kilometers. you got to so, convert
3: those to miles, Drew.
1: Yeah, yeah. The, the gals, to leaders to the kilometers yeah. to miles. Are, <laughs>
3: Get your calculator out.
1: Yeah, yeah. Get out the abacus. But um, yeah, I mean, so, yeah, I and mean, then you're looking you at know, critical I, bets. I, yeah.
2: They're going to continue infrastructure spend. Uh, you know, when you talk to people who go to second and third tier cities, it looks to people just by the naked eye is. There is too much infrastructure. You know, I think you have to remember that when you look at it on a per person basis, there's a whole lot of people in rural China who essentially aren't part of the greater economy. Uh, so you have to kind of manage that out. And, and, and I think that the key to the problem in China is that, yeah, there's always going to be investment in China. It's this development economy philosophy, but that, that investment continues uh, to be less productive. Uh, and as a result debt will continue to rise um, and you've got a problem. You've got an export economy. Uh, while they will continue to be able to export, uh, the, the debt issues uh, and the demographic issues are going to be very, very limiting to their ability to grow. And I have to think that you're gonna start to read more and more about the wealth effects. Remember, when the housing market collapsed in the United States, you had a long-term wealth effect. It took a long time. For consumers to 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 rebuild and i can't imagine why it wouldn't be the same if not worse in china
3: yeah i think it's a situation of damned if you do damned if you don't so if you do wasteful spending then you've spent a bunch of money you labor yourself in debt or if you underspend, then you might not have the infrastructure when there's a boom or when there's a new development. And right now, Ch- China is in that situation where they have a recession that could come based on the lockdown that they have from COVID, also just where the world economy is with the, with where the inflation numbers that we've talked about are. And so do we spend our way out of this and, and take on more debt? Or do we underspend and then not have the infrastructure when we have another boom so it's 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 a tricky line for them china has historically been known for wasteful spending and a lot of times they'll build up a city and then people will move to it later on so they'll build the city and then when companies move there they may give them tax incentives or or uh, reasons to go there and then all of a sudden cities fill up um which which seems a little backwards but it, it has worked for them in the past, but there may be a, a sign here that now they're, they, they they already have the infrastructure and that they need to build on the infrastructure that they already have in their major metropolitan cities.
1: Yeah. I mean, the Belt and Road Initiative is, it's been years in the making. I think they've got everything out of countries like Kenya and the Democratic Republic of Congo's, so they uh, mm-hmm. possibly could. And some of it's been very successful when you're looking at, you know, the amount they have in cobalt um, ownership, but then you've also had those sorts of failed investments across Central Asia and, and Africa as they've built this out, so.
2: Yeah, and you're, you're going to go through a long period of debt restructuring um, around so many of those huge Belt and Road uh, initiatives.
1: I guess the last kind of global inflationary uh, bottleneck is the Black Sea blockade. I was reading today the Turks and the Russians are in talks. They they're, may start to let out some shipments of Ukrainian grain, but. If that doesn't really go through, I mean, you're hearing a lot more t- hawkish talk. Uh, Max Boot kind of had a big op-ed um, discussing, you know, multinational flotillas, uh, the efficacy of them used in the past. They were using the past uh, in the 70s against the Iranians. Obviously, you're dealing with the nuclear power in a big lake. Uh, Some the situations a little bit different right now, but I, I do think that the Black Sea blockade is having some pretty big uh, bottlenecks, especially when we're looking at grain, um, you know, but additionally, I mean, you've got a lot of the neighboring Black Sea countries where, like, Turkey right now has a 73% inflation rate, so if you think guys like Erdogan and stuff aren't going to start taking that seriously and looking for a way to, you know, open up traffic, um, you know, I, I just think that's going to be the scenario.
2: Yeah. Yeah, maybe Erdogan can help the situation. He's kind of frenemies with Putin. Uh, But I think overall, um, there's not going to be appetite in the U.S. and in NATO of really trying to uh, break a blockade, because I think people think it's tantamount to trying to enforce a no-fly zone. And it's just too provocative. and And Putin is just so unpredictable that I just don't think there's appetite for that. and And I would say, sounding somewhat cynically, I'm sure NATO and u s. countries aren't as reliant on that grain. That grain is is largely going to the third world. And you know, unfortunately, uh, I think that first world countries are going to say, not as much our problem. not as much our problem that is worth it for us, perhaps pushing Putin to the brink.
3: And we've seen the European Union trying to arrange alternative routes from roads and, and railroads, but nothing can compare to that sea power. You know, one similarity that people try are trying to uh, historically bring relevant is that when we had the uh, Iranian and we were trying to get oil out of the Persian Gulf Uh, But really, the U.S. Army, or Navy for that matter, launched a a huge uh, fleet. We took down a couple ships, even uh, an airliner with people on board. And when it really comes down to it, I think, Tim, to your exact point, is the U.S. has no business, one, because Russia has nuclear warheads and the Iranians do not, and then also just the backlash that might happen from Putin trying to break that blockade, even taking down a, a Russian ship might just, is it, I think is too much for us to handle. One thing I did note is it does look like uh, the Ukrainians finally got some harpoon mus- uh, missiles, out of Denmark from the United States, and those things look wild. I mean, just flying right along the hairline, I mean, that's going to be a nightmare for the Russians. So maybe the Ukrainians break it themselves, but I just don't see the United States and NATO being the ones that break it. Yeah, I agree.
1: All right, gents, uh, anything we might have overlooked this week?
2: You know, the only thing I I would mention is that I think you're going to start to see over the next couple weeks uh, a much closer examination of the progress, that reconciliation legislation is making if mansion and schumer are going to be able to put something together i think that the important point though is that it is not going to be stimulative this is not going to be a build back better plan that is going to be fiscally stimulative because in while it'll be good for green energy uh mansion's demand is that it has to be deficit reducing uh and the fact is is that if 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 something passes it'll pass with some kind of global alternative minimum tax, uh, <clears throat> some kind of higher uh, structures in order to increase corporate tax revenues. So, you know, who knows if it passes, but if it does pass, it is not going to be stimulative. Uh, and I think that's the the important point.
1: Yeah, I think the big thing they'll try and build into that, obviously, is Medicare negotiation drug prices in some way. So then you can say that's deficit reductionary, but it's also... Anti-inflationary in terms of people who are, I mean, rationing insulin yeah. in this country, or, or yeah. you name it, right? So, um, so yeah, that that could be a way to kind of offset some of that, and then you know, use that as to for energy investments. Uh, so right. it'll look look like yeah. a medical bill, and then an energy bill is kind of what it will look like, I think.
2: Yeah, and I think if you look at Congress's history of trying to uh, manage <laughs> drug prices and make real progress against the drug lobby, I think it's O for infinity. So, Mm -hmm. you know, anytime that has to be part (laughs) of a piece of legislation, you can make the bet that the legislation is going nowhere.
1: Yeah. Then the fourth estate will be like, oh, what happens if this undermines R&D? It's like, well, I don't think they've touched insulin in 60 years. It's just pretty basic stuff so I know
3: just you, the yeah. price to produce yeah. it's gone up drew not the not the bonuses yeah, right, of everyone right, no yeah. you're yeah. totally off yeah. guard <laughs> we need to lower taxes it'll all be good you know one good thing that I think has come of it and I don't know if people have if you guys have seen it but really Mark Cuban has launched this new yeah. prescription drug company uh it's called cost plus for drugs really trying to get prescription drugs to people at a cheaper price he's he's going to the table and into the mat and negotiating with drug companies to get generic drugs for for people insulin's one of them i believe that he's trying to get better prices for families which in my opinion uh well well on mark cuban uh, I mean you if you
2: know, yeah i'm sorry to inter, interrupt but if you know anybody who's diabetic who's a type 1 diabetic uh and especially if you know somebody who's type 1 diabetic and isn't wealthy and doesn't have good insurance it is an absolute disaster it's a thousand bucks a month for a buddy of mine who is unemployed uh you know it just that is such an example of massive governmental failure and just how sclerotic our congress and overall political system has begun ha- has become uh and it you know you look at 2022 and all of the congressional races about 7% of them about 7% of them are competitive so you got about 35 races that matter. Otherwise, they're already predetermined, and it certainly yeah. looks
3: like, yeah. I was going to say, and in, in, in 2022, insulin's been around for 60 years, yeah. 70 yeah. years, whatever the number is. You'd think the number would be going down, not up, right? I mean, if we, t- if we think about modern technology and medicine, seems like to produce insulin, that's an easy one to, to drive down.
1: And rolling into the midterms, it's just like, God, if there's a change in parties, we might have policy paralysis, you know, (laughs) wait, what's that? What's that? Not, Not
2: only will you have policy paralysis, but I mean, the GOP, the congressional leadership just got together to decide, okay, we know we're going to impeach Biden. What for? Doesn't that strike anybody as a little bit backwards? Like a guy's got to really do something first before you talk about impeachment. But that's where we're going. That is absolutely where we're going. You will have congressional investigations as soon as this new Congress uh, is sworn in. And you'll have nothing but those investigations for the next two years. You want to see Congress get nothing done? Wait until the 2003-2004 period. They'll set records.
3: Can't wait. And recession. So changing gears before we get named the Doom and Gloom podcast. But um, changing gears here, you know, One thing that I'm really looking at is major retailers. So we're starting to get some mixed results from them. We saw Target with their excess inventory, Walmart, but really I think that's going to be a big indicator of consumer spending. And if we see a big change from these major retailers in consumer spending, that might be a sign that people are becoming more defensive and anticipating a recession coming on. So that may, that's going to be one indicator that I'm looking at over the next couple of weeks. Yeah.
2: Yeah, you're going to continue to see retail earnings bad. I mean, it's just the nature of things, you know, just in time inventory and all those things were great. And all of these retailers basically lost their discipline So we just got to get product here. We're going to buy our own container ships and we're just going to get product. And, you know, uh, Cornell at Target just keeps arguing, no, there's still demand, but we got the wrong inventory for the demand that we have. We got the wrong inventory for trade down we got the wrong inventory for people moving away from more discretionary products you know people keep talking about the savings rate still being high from the four trillion dollars of fiscal stimulus but you know the top of that pyramid the top of that money that went to business owners that justifiably needed help but by and large probably we overstimulated that money just remains in savings you're definitely seeing signs that the bottom half of this economy the bottom half of consumers who are seeing wage growth but not real wage growth are really suffering uh, and you're seeing that in credit card in, in credit demand you're starting to see it in default rates you're going to continue to see it in and overall demand look cons- consumer discretionary earnings revisions have started and they're going to do nothing but keep going
1: Sounds good, everybody. Well, um, that's the time we have for this week. Thanks for your likes and subscribes, and we're out. The information covered and posted
0: represents the views and opinions of the host and does not necessarily represent the views or opinions of Wellfest. The mere appearance of content on the site does not constitute an endorsement by Wellfest. The content has been made available for informational and educational purposes only. WealthFest does not make any representation or warranties with respect to the accuracy, applicability, fitness, or completeness of the content. WealthFest does not warrant the performance, effectiveness, or applicability of any sites listed or linked to any of the contents. The content is not intended to be a substitute for professional investing advice. Always seek the advice of your financial advisor or other qualified financial service provider with any questions you may have regarding your investment planning. Investment and investing involves risk, including possible loss of principal.